Hi again, everyone. I'm Tim. I'm the senior minister here at St. John's. And as Em has already outlined, we're going to start a little, little mini-series, really, just two weeks, uh, thinking about uh, baptism this week, Holy Communion next week. Kind of thinking about why it is that we do these things, uh, why we have these important um, things that happen in the life of our church. In the Anglican Church, uh, baptism and Holy Communion are grouped together and they're called uh, sacraments. Other churches uh, call them the same name as well. And I guess in, a, in an informal sense, a sacrament is a tradition or uh, a ritual that has been given to us by Jesus uh, that allows us to experience something of his grace uh, as we undertake it. Okay? Now, as soon as I start using a word like traditional ritual, some of you might start to squirm and feel uneasy uh, because uh, we can be a bit suspicious about things that are rituals, particularly religious rituals. But actually, rituals form a part of our everyday lives in a whole variety of ways. So uh, every morning when I get out of bed, I walk to the kitchen and I perform a sacred ritual. I put the coffee machine on, I wait 15 minutes for it to warm up, uh, and I make two coffees, one for my wife, Anna, and one for me. And if I fail to do that, if I fail to perform this morning ritual, I really do feel like there is something missing from the day. Caffeine, yes, but not just that. Uh, it's also part of just the way the morning unfolds. Uh, it's something that makes the, the morning what it is in our household. Uh, it's kind of an act of love and connection as well as a mere sort of perking up with caffeine uh, to get into the day. Or another example, uh, last week in our uh, office, the church staff practised a sacred ritual together after lunch. Uh, after we'd finished eating, a cake was brought in on a platter. There were candles on the cake. Uh, we all joined together in singing the hymn, Happy Birthday, and uh, we finished with three rousing cheers for Kirk as a belated birthday celebration for him. Now, that's a societal ritual, isn't it? Um, kids from a very young age know what to do at a birthday party. They know the song to sing. They know when they're allowed to blow out the candles and when they're not allowed to blow out the candles. There's this common pattern of behaviour that we undertake together which marks a celebration. Now, on uh, Wednesday when we were doing this, or was it Tuesday, whatever, whatever day it was, uh, Sam Oldland, our student minister, who's uh, spoken here at Sunday at 6, was in the office. And before we began, uh, our office manager, Carolyn Burns, said to Sam, now, Sam, do you know what we do? And he just thought she was completely from another planet. He said, uh, yeah, we sing happy birthday, don't we? And then I assume Kirk will blow out the candles. But what she meant was we had a little local ritual that we undertake. You see, when we get to the last line of happy birthday, we break into harmony as a staff team. And this is a very important part of the way we do things around here. And she wanted to make sure that Sam understood the way this ritual unfolds in the staff office here at St. John's. So you've got kind of a local custom or a local ritual embedded in a societal ritual, but both of them are really important as parts of our identity. They're both important ways of how we celebrate around here, part of making a birthday special. Now, there's heaps of other examples that I could give you, 
Uh, but I hope you see that rituals are actually very important because they're concrete, repeated, loved ways of marking important occasions and remembering significant events. Uh, and what we call the sacraments, baptism and communion, are important rituals in the same way. They're ways of repeatedly and in concrete ways celebrating significant things, namely significant parts of the good news of Jesus. A more formal definition of sacraments, in the Anglican Church at least, is that they are an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Okay, So there is outward parts, things that you can see, which are part of these rituals. Uh, in baptism, there is water, right? Water is visible, it can be touched, you can see it. In communion, there is bread, there is wine, okay? These are the outward and visible parts of what is going on. But in both of them, through these outward things that you can see and are sort of common everyday things, God works in us through his Holy Spirit. So there's an inward and a spiritual grace that God works in us through reminding us of central truths of the gospel and doing his work in us through these outward means. We're going to talk in more detail about exactly what the inward graces in each case are as we go through. But I just want us to recognise how good and how generous God is in providing these sorts of things for us. You see, God must know something about us as human beings to be so loving and gracious to us to provide uh, real concrete things as teaching points and reminders and ways to give us his grace. God knows that we're sensory beings. And so uh, in these sacraments, there are things that you can see, there are things that you hear, there are things that you touch and feel, there are things that you smell and taste, and all of it is about reminding us and reinforcing for us the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. Uh, one of the lecturers at Ridley College in Melbourne, Mike Bird, calls the sacraments virtual realities of the gospel. Okay? You'd be familiar with virtual reality. Uh, you normally sort of think about it as computer technology, um, headsets which look a bit weird, uh, like that one there, but they, they produce images and sounds and other sensations so that you feel like you're in an imaginary environment. Uh, well, God's well ahead of the curve on this one. He's been using virtual reality for over 2,000 years, using water, using bread, using wine to stimulate our senses so that we're reminded of and we experience his grace in the good news about Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in us. Um, if you remember nothing from the next two weeks, I want you to remember that at their heart, central to the sacraments, is Jesus. They are all about Jesus. They are things that Jesus commands us to do, right? So we do them because Jesus tells us that we should do them. Uh, so in baptism, for example, 
Uh, One of the last things that Jesus says to his followers in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, sometimes called the Great Commission, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus tells us that we should baptize. So it's commanded by Jesus, but it's also intended to focus our attention on the central truths about Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Now, it's hard to get more central than that. Commanded by Jesus, Jesus has told us to do it, and focusing our minds on the key things that Jesus did, die on the cross and rise again to new life. And so you would hope, wouldn't you, that uh, the sacraments, things like baptism and Holy Communion, would be this wonderful unifying force in the church, all different types of churches coming together uh, with these things to celebrate Jesus and his work in us. You'd hope that, wouldn't you? I mean, you would. Unfortunately, the reality has been a bit different, that uh, sacraments, things like baptism and Holy Communion, have actually caused great divisions between churches um, as people take different views on what we're doing and what is happening in these things. Uh, And more than once, because I came up with this idea to do this two-week series, more than once I've thought to myself... That was a really dumb idea because the last thing that I want to do is create sort of divisions and differences of opinion uh, in our church. Um, But I think it's important that we do it and I think that it's important that we're honest that there are different viewpoints uh, in these matters. Um, And having Q&A after the talk is a really great way to engage and bounce back and forth. Um, So if you've got questions, and you will probably as we go along, Uh, text them in. We'd love to engage and to answer questions. Because the way to go about these sorts of different viewpoints is actually to try and have the discussion and to be gracious about it. So my aim in speaking is I'm going to try and be gracious in the way that I speak and I ask you to be gracious in the way that you listen and then as we dialogue with each other in the Q&A. Because... The focus of these things is on Jesus. He is the centre. He is the main thing that it's all about. And that is more important than any of the differences uh, that we might have on these things. So with that in mind, I want to unpack a little bit about baptism using uh, Acts chapter 2, which Steph read to us. Uh, I'd love you to have your Bibles open because, as always, we're going to unpack what it says there. uh, And I want you to check against what I'm saying. It's on page 884. Uh, It's Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 37. Let me give you the context as you're looking it up, page 884. Jesus has died on the cross, risen again to new life, uh, and he has now returned to heaven. And he's told his followers that they are to wait in Jerusalem and he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit on them. The Spirit of God is going to come to live within them, okay? Uh, That happens on the the very day that we're reading here in Acts chapter 2. 
God's Spirit comes upon them. They're able to speak in different languages so they can, they can speak out the good news of what Jesus has done and what God has done um, in a whole range of different languages. And it gathers a crowd. People come together and they're like, what's going on here? And so Peter stands up in front of the crowd and preaches, basically, tells them what is going on. He explains to them that this is the fulfilment of the promises that God has made in the Old Testament, that he'd put his Holy Spirit in all of his people. He tells them that this has come about through Jesus. Jesus is the great king that God had promised to send, the Messiah. Jesus has risen from the dead and is alive today. And that Jesus is seated at the position of authority and rule over the entire universe. He's at the right hand of God. He's the Lord of everything. And as the Lord of everything, he's poured out his Holy Spirit. And that's what's going on here. And then he finishes with these words. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Whoa. Right? Imagine hearing that message. This guy that we put to death on a cross about a month ago, he's now seated at the position of authority over the entire universe. He's in charge and ruling the universe. And so not surprisingly, they're cut to the heart, we're told, and they want to know what they should do about it. So the context for this passage is the preaching of the good news about Jesus. The context is Peter telling them all the great things about Jesus, about his death and resurrection, and that he is in charge of the universe. So you've got the gospel, the word of God, the preaching of the gospel, which goes hand in hand with the sacrament of baptism. It's word and sacrament, always together, always held together. And so the people ask, well, what should we do? How should we respond? And here's Peter's answer in verse 38. He says, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Uh, Repent means, colloquially, chuck a yui, right? If you're driving your car and you're heading in the wrong direction, you need to do a U-turn. You need to stop going the direction you're going and start going in a different direction. Repentance is the same. If you're heading away from God, you're heading in a direction that God doesn't want you to be in, if you're ignoring God, uh, rejecting his rule over you, you need to turn around from that, turn away from the things that are taking you away from God and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, who is the king, the ruler of the universe. Uh, And Peter says you need to be baptised in the name of Jesus. The way to turn around, the way to repent, is to turn away from the things that you're, are taking you away from God and be baptised as a means of entering into a relationship with him, expressing your trust in him, your faith in him through baptism. So the response that is needed for baptism is two things, repentance and faith. Right? Doing that U-turn and turning your eyes to Jesus and putting your trust in him. Uh, There's a thing called the Anglican Catechism, which is really like a a question and answer way of teaching uh, the truths of the Christian faith. And one one of the questions that they asked is, what is required of persons to be baptized? And the answer is this, repentance by which they reject sin and faith 
by which they believe the promises made by God in that sacrament. So baptism is like uh, the entry point into the Christian faith. It's a sacrament which marks the beginning. It marks inclusion, acceptance, membership. Okay? So think of it like this. When a person uh, gets chosen to play their first test for the Australian cricket team, they are presented with a baggy green cap, right? When they are about to play their first test, they get given that cap. You're not allowed to have one, you're not allowed to wear one before you get chosen for the team. Right? It's a ritual that says you're included. You're a test player now. You're accepted. You're a member of this team. Uh, when a police cadet graduates from the academy, they're given a badge marking them out as a police officer. Right? It's a ritual that says you are included, you are accepted, you are a member, you are now a policewoman. You can be part of this police force. And in the same way, when a person begins the Christian life, they are baptised. It's a ritual which marks their inclusion, their acceptance, their membership as a follower of Jesus. Uh, so that leads us to another question. What, what does baptism do? Okay, well listen again as Peter keeps speaking again in verse 38. He said, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter identifies two things here. Forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, when a person begins the Christian life and is baptised, it marks the fact that they are connected with Jesus and because they're connected with Jesus, they receive all the spiritual benefits that coming from trusting in Jesus and being connected with him. Right? Our sins are forgiven. It's like God washes us clean from all the wrong things that we've done and the water in baptism is a powerful uh, symbol of that washing clean that God gives us when we come to Jesus. We also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God himself, by his Spirit, comes to live in us. The presence of God comes to live within us. Uh, when we come to Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to transform us, to live out the Christian life. Right? This is not some additional gift that you have to try and get later or ask for later. It happens at that point of coming into a relationship with Jesus and accepting him. He gives the Holy Spirit to live within you. Uh, if we bounce out to another passage in Romans chapter 6, it gives us a powerful description of what's going on here. Uh, Paul, who's writing that letter to the Christians in Rome, says that in baptism they were baptised into the death of Jesus. And so they died to sin. But also in baptism, they've been raised with Jesus. Just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, we've been raised with him to live a totally new life, a radically good life following Jesus, impacting the world in the name of Jesus. Uh, and that's symbolised in baptism. So when we have uh, a baptism over in the tank here in the floor, we fill it with water, and part of the ritual, part of what happens, is that the person goes under the water, symbolising that through their connection with Jesus, they die to that old way of life, the way of sin. And as they come out of the water, it symbolises the new life 
that they have in Jesus, filled with his spirit uh, and going to live differently for him. Uh, When we have a baptism and we use the font, the symbolism is intended to be the same. We pour water over the head of the person being baptised. We try and get them as wet as possible because it's marking this new beginning in Jesus. It's marking dying with Christ, being raised with Christ, and it also symbolises the pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, upon the person, which baptism symbolises as well. Uh, Baptism also uh, marks out the fact that the person is necessarily included in the church, the family of people who follow Jesus. Because baptism isn't a private affair, it's something that we do together, Uh, And when you receive Jesus and come into a relationship with him, you're connected automatically and necessarily with all the other people who trust in Christ and have received his spirit as well. Uh, So when we have a baptism, it's part of the deal that those who are gathered, the church family, the congregation, are asked, will you support these people who are being baptised as they take this step of faith and start following Jesus and we welcome them into the life of the church community. So that leaves one more uh, question to be answered. It's the most difficult and contentious one. Who can be baptised? And let's make it more pointed. Let's talk turkey. Can infants and children be baptised? Or is it only for adults or older children? Okay? That's kind of the, the crunch issue Uh, on this one. Uh, And I I know there's going to be different opinions in this room. The Anglican position uh, is that children can be baptised and we do baptise children in our church. And speaking personally, I'm convinced that that's right and proper uh, from my own grappling with the Bible and theology. Uh, But I recognise that not everyone in this room agrees with that. Uh, And some of you actually uh, had your children dedicated Uh, at this church rather than baptised. You might have been dedicated yourself rather than being baptised. Again, my aim here is to be gracious in our discussion about this. Uh, And over the years that I've been in ministry, for a while there, it was almost 50-50 in terms of baptism versus dedications, just because of the churches that I've been working in. Um, It's probably a little bit more baptism over dedication, but I've done a lot of both. And my approach is this. When I go and meet with a family to talk about this, I say, I'm going to tell you why I think it's okay uh, and right and proper uh, to baptise children. I'm going to make my case. But at the end of the day, it's your decision and whatever you decide to do, um, we're very happy to do uh, either. So I'm going to do the same thing tonight. I'm going to give you my case as to why um, I think it's appropriate to baptise children. You're free to disagree with me on this point. You're free to ask questions during uh, Q&A. And I want to say that I don't think that this is a primary doctrinal point that Christians should break fellowship, break relationship with each other over. My starting point is actually this passage, if you read on. uh, It's what Peter uh, goes on to say in verse 39. So after Peter has called people to repentance... And baptism, he goes on in verse 39 to say these words. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
Uh, so I take it in a very straightforward manner that Peter is offering this right there and then. Uh, not only for the adults who are hearing the message, who want to turn to Jesus, but for their whole families, including explicitly their children. The counter-argument to this is that Peter is offering a future thing here, right? He's saying, it's for your children, but only when they're old enough to make the decision for themselves. That's the counter-argument. But I take the view that he's actually offering it there and then, that the promise is for them and for their children here and now. Uh, As you move through uh, the book of Acts, we read about whole households being baptised. So the gospel is preached, the gospel is accepted... And again, I would argue that that included children as well as uh, servants. Remember, households in those days included a bunch of people who lived together and worked together. Uh, And that when the head of the household decides, yep, Jesus is worth following, that as a household together, they made the decision to follow Jesus and everyone was baptised. Now, the the counter-argument to this one is, well, there's no explicit reference here to children, Uh, You're just assuming that there were children in the household and maybe it was only those people who were old enough to make a decision for themselves who were baptised. That could be true. Those are the two sort of arguments that take place with this. For me too, uh, the continuity of the way that God deals with his people in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible before Jesus, and the New Testament is important in, in my grappling with this and working out where I sit. On this one. So in the Old Testament, amongst the people of Israel, uh, God's people in the Old Testament before Jesus, uh, Jewish boys were circumcised when they were eight days old, right? It was a tangible symbol of their inclusion in the people of God. Children were always included in God's promises that he made. Um, God's people were made up of adults and children together, and the children received the sign of that covenant, that promise that God had made with his people. And for me, wrestling with this, thinking about those first believers who came to follow Jesus, it would be strange to them, even bizarre, I think, for this to change in such a radical way that their children were not included and given the symbol of the new covenant, namely baptism. Uh, In fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 draws a parallel between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. He says this, In Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So as followers of Jesus, uh, circumcision is no longer required, right? Because baptism symbolises not only a cutting off of a little piece of skin, but a cutting off of the whole old self ruled by sin, that whole way of life which rejects God Uh, and doesn't follow him. That's cut off in baptism, Paul says. And we start a new life instead with the risen Jesus. So uh, part of my thinking on this is that as circumcision was there for children and for adults, 
in the Old Testament, so now baptism replaces that in the New Testament for both. Really, when it comes down to it, the key to this um, kind of argument, if you guess, is the relationship between baptism and between repentance and faith. And the main argument against baptising children is that they're too young to properly exercise faith in Jesus and repentance from sin. Therefore, they should wait until they're old enough to do so. Uh, And in this view, faith and repentance are prerequisites for baptism. They're things that must come first before it's appropriate for baptism to be performed. Okay, they've got to be demonstrated before a person can be baptised. And what I love about this view is the strong emphasis on the fact that people need to personally respond to Jesus, that everyone must make a personal decision for themselves, a personal commitment to Jesus. Right? You're not a Christian independently of putting your faith in him. You're not a Christian because your mum or your grandma or your granddad was a Christian. It's not something you inherit. You have to make a decision for yourself. It requires a response. I'm in absolute agreement, and I love that emphasis in that viewpoint. But actually, the Anglican position in baptising children affirms this. It requires faith and repentance to be exercised at the baptism of a child, that the, the sponsors, parents and godparents, must themselves turn to Christ, express their faith in Christ, that they personally follow Jesus, and the fact that they will raise this child to be a follower of Jesus as well. And so they make the promises on behalf of the child, but it is affirmed very strongly in the baptism service that the child themselves must respond in faith and repentance as they're able to do it. What's happening here is that in baptism, God's initiative of grace is being held out. It is being shown that the offer of forgiveness in Jesus comes before we've done anything. It's his initiative, it is his grace that we need to respond to. Baptism is about the grace that God offers us, even more than it's about the response that we make to his grace. We do need to respond in faith and repentance. Baptism will do a person no good if they turn from Jesus, they turn away from faith and repentance, but the promises can be offered and a child, I think, can grow into that faith as they grow up. Uh, One of the challenges in not baptising children who are raised to follow Jesus is at what point do you baptise them? When does that appropriate point come? Is a five-year-old faith enough? Or an eight-year-old? Do you have to be 15, 18, 25? Because as a person grows physically and intellectually, um, faith grows as well and it changes. Uh, People talk about faith development, the way that a person's faith grows through childhood, through adolescence into adulthood. And the question is, when is faith, faith? Right? So I have kids and I read the Bible and I pray with them at night time. And my three-year-old constantly surprises me with the prayers that he prays. Right? He prays these prayers to Jesus, telling Jesus how much he loves him and how he's thankful that Jesus died on the cross. And it's not a parroting of stuff that 
um, I'm directly teaching him. It's coming sort of out in his own voice and his own way expressing that to Jesus. Is that faith? Or is the three-year-old too young to have faith? Uh, I've got a Bible on my shelf that was given to me at my baptism. Uh, I was baptised as a baby, 29th of February, 76. Uh, I was about a month and a half. You can work out how old I am uh, based on that. And I've often grappled with this question um, as I've thought about, is it appropriate to baptise little children? Was that the right time or the wrong time for me to be baptised? Sometimes... Some of the arguments against baptising children is people have a bad experience of this, right? They were baptised as a child, it didn't mean that much, and it's only later they were baptised, and they feel like it was a bit of a scam. But for me, the opposite is actually true. Um, Obviously, my faith grew and developed over the years, but I can't identify a time when I haven't loved Jesus and trusted in him. From my infancy, I have read the Bible, initially with my parents and then by myself. I've prayed to God. There's been periods in my life of struggle and sin where I've been moving away from God, perhaps. There's been times of great renewal and excitement and growth as I've really rocketed in my relationship with God. When I was 14, I publicly stood up and was confirmed. I made a, a public commitment that I confirmed the promises that, I had, that had been made for me in my baptism. But in many ways, that was kind of a bit of an arbitrary point because at 14, I still had lots of stuff that I was working out. For me, probably around the age of 18, when I um, was wrestling with stuff in my first year out of school, becoming an independent adult, questioning whether I would follow what my parents had taught me or not, was more of a growth point and a decision point for me. And that's the thing, isn't it, about faith? It is a journey and a progression. Three-year-old faith is different to eight-year-old 15-year-old, 25-year-old faith, and for that matter, 45, 65-year-old, and 95-year-old faith. Because faith is about continuing to turn to Jesus, always turning back to Jesus, putting one step after the other, and continuing to follow Jesus through the different stages of life, the different challenges that come your way, the different things that are thrown at you. So personally, I'm convinced that there is no better time that I could have been baptised than when I was. And that was consistent, actually, with the command that Jesus has given us. You might not be convinced of that. That's okay. Uh, I hope we can still be friends, uh, and I hope you'll ask me about that during the Q&A. When it comes down to it, here's what happens. There are some people who baptise their children when they're infants, and then they have to, when they're old enough, say, yes, I believe this for myself and I accept it and I want to confirm that publicly. That's how it happens for some people. For other people, they're dedicated when they're children. Their parents say, I want them to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to baptise them. They have to make that decision for themselves. And then when they're old enough, they do make that public declaration and they're baptised. And I don't want to be flippant about this, But the only difference between one position and the other is, where do you put the water? Does the water go there, or does the water go there? From a sociological point of view, two great things are happening. At a young age, parents are saying, we want our kids to follow Jesus, to serve him, to always know his love, 
and follow him. And here, the person themselves, when they're old enough, is saying, I want to follow Jesus and I want everyone to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm turning to him, I'm trusting him, and I'm turning away from the things that take me away from him. How good are both of those things, right? They are both worth celebrating, they are both good, and it is not worth dividing ourselves over the differences that we have when they are both about Jesus, his death and his resurrection, which forgives our sins and gives us a new life filled with his spirit to serve him, washing us clean, giving us a new way of life. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are good to us and you give us good gifts. We thank you for the gift of baptism, showing us that you wash our sins away because of Jesus' death and you give us your Holy Spirit that we can follow you. Help us to keep our eyes on the central thing, that is Jesus, his commands to us, and the great things that he has done for us. Amen.